0: to the be a better ally podcast my name is trisha friedman my pronouns are she her and hers what can the field of rhetoric do to foster connection and care across difference and what stories must we tell to remake worlds conducive to one another's thriving if those questions have you feeling curious and inspired you are in for a treat of a conversation today because those are the questions driving the work of Dr. Vox Joe Shu. They are an assistant professor in the Department of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Texas at Austin and the author of the book, Constellating Home, Trans and Queer Asian American Rhetorics. They study and practice storytelling as political strategy. Their writing has also appeared in The Huffington Post, The Boston Globe, The Progressive, and many other news, media, literacy, and academic outlets. You can find their publications using the navigation bar on their website that's linked in to the show notes. I absolutely was enamored with the book Constellating Home. And you are in luck because that research and work is actually available open source for the entire month of June. So I'm hoping today's interview with Dr. Shu has you equally as fascinated with that work. And if you are, of course, you can support Dr. Shu by purchasing a copy of the book, by asking your librarian to stock it, or again, by taking advantage of it being open source for the month of June. Please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shu. Dr. Shu, I wanted to open our interview by quoting your book, Constellating Home, Trans and Queer Asian American Rhetorics, uh, specifically readers who might be familiar with it. I'm looking here at page nine, where you write, quote, this chorus of narratives invites readers to understand home as more than location. I'm wondering if you can talk to listeners about why that understanding is so significant. And why again, another uh, little mini quote from you, you you say, quote, belonging is not stable. I think that's really important for listeners of this show who are in K 12 education to think more about. Uh, so I'm hoping you might just expand on either or both or sort of like the junction of those two ideas.
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you for the question. So There are two questions at the core of the book. One is what does trans and queer community look like? This group of people whose ancestries span at least 20 countries with no shared language or homeland. Uh, What does it mean to be seen as a homogenous group when when you have the largest wealth gap and uh, educational gap in the United States? Uh, And what does it mean to actually form a collective identity in that context in a way that is actually genuinely accountable to one another? Um, And then zooming out further from that, what does it mean to be a migrant to forcibly occupied land and and on this country built on indigenous erasure and forced labor? What does it mean to act responsible when you inherit that context? Um, And again, to build a meaningful set of relations um, moving forward. So that's the sort of broad, I guess, philosophical shaping of the book. Uh, I'll I'll make that more concrete in my own experience in that um, for most of my life, I felt like I wasn't Asian-American or queer, um, even though I'm both, (laughs) and trans and disabled. And I grew up around spaces and stories where all the Asian-Americans were straight and all of the queers were white, right? So I felt like I did not, I couldn't inhabit any of those identities because I didn't see myself. I didn't see a path uh, in which I could be comfortable in those spaces. Um, And then I, working on this book, spent time in these spaces and in these communities where they very much understood that belonging and community is a thing that's constantly made in relation, um, that is accountable to the people who are present. So it's not that family or whatever is a preordained concept that we adhere to regardless, it's that we make it in response to who is there and who we want to be there. Um, So there's this phrase from Mia Mingus, who's a queer disability activist, a Korean transracial adoptee, She says, uh, wherever you are is where I wanna be. It's how she captures the concept of sort of disabled solidarity. And I think it's a really beautiful way of thinking through what is it we mean when we say solidarity and alliance and that we're gonna show up for each other. Um, What does it mean to commit to, I want you to be here, that is my priority, regardless of what preconceptions I had about this relationship or this space, I will remake it so that you can be here. Um, And I think that that necessarily asks us to reimagine, you know, as an educator myself, I think that asks us to reimagine what it is we do with our classrooms um, and how we shape the interactions we have in them.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, what we'll dig into, I think your book is also just a huge testament to the power of stories. And um, you use a phrase in the book that I hadn't heard before called stock stories, and I think we have a lot of stock stories in education about, well, of course, everyone feels safe. Of course, everyone feels like they belong. And of course, if you are a, mig- a marginalized person, that often isn't the truth. Um, you know, you mentioned sort of the the wealth gap. And I would say there's also a, a media gap or a narrative gap, which your book so eloquently addresses. And I, listeners, I want to point you to another resource of Dr. Shoes. There's a a panel that you facilitated about queer storytelling. The link will be over there in the show notes. It's well worth the the watch. Both in the panel and in your book, you talk about stories as a knowledge building tool or maybe strategy is a better word that really value experience. And you ask readers to question to what extent we value experience and we we value storytelling as kind of a path to co-constructing knowledge. Your work introduced me to the concepts of narrative scarcity and narrative plentitude. Can you say more about those concepts in the context of your research? Uh,
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I've always been a storyteller. Uh, I guess a fun anecdote is that when I was in third grade, I used to write these novels in these spiral notebooks. And after recess, my teacher would let me read them out loud to the class. I think it was something about a kid with a magical skateboard. Um, I'm pretty sure those notebooks are gone, thank God. Um, but I've always I've always sort of made sense of my world through story. Um, if I was processing something, I always wrote. Um, and honestly, humans are storytelling creatures, right? There's lots of researchers in, in psychology and history who've delved into that in other contexts. But I always tell my students, you can have all the data in the world and it doesn't mean unless you put it in a story. So things like climate change is a struggle over story. We can agree on a natural disaster. We can agree on the number of natural disasters, but whether we agree that that is something caused by human action or a natural variation in global weather patterns, that's a struggle over story of what story we're using to connect these events and into the possible future. So um, with that in mind, Asian-Americans in particular uh, live in what Viet Thanh Nguyen, the Pulitzer-winning author calls narrative scarcity. So um, we are disproportionately underrepresented in a lot of mainstream media. Um, A study of the top grossing films, I think from the early 2000s to 2019 found that only 3% had Asian American or Pacific Islander leads. Um, And then another study over a similar period found that almost half of all Asian American roles were punchlines. Um, So what does it mean to grow up in a world where stories, the ones around you, this way that you have of making meaning and of, of understanding Uh, when they see you as a joke or when you're not even there. Um, Stories for me, they're how we understood how we got here. They're also what we're capable of imagining in the future. And when you don't have those stories, when you grow up without any representation of an adult who looks or lives like you, you don't have that possibility. Um, So I'm among a lot of um, professors who never saw themselves as a university faculty member because they never saw themselves represented in any of their you know university um teaching staff and uh that's a really powerful way of shaping you know where people can go with their lives or limiting where people can go with their lives so um something that if you had in that article and also uh me in this book uh something that we're pushing toward is narrative plentitude plentitude sorry um so The thing about uh being for example a cisgender heterosexual white man is that you don't see a news story about a cis white white dude and say oh you know that's representative of everyone you know like all white dudes do that um and that's because there's so many narratives available to them right um that that's never taken as the, the the only possibility for their lives or the ways that they behave in the world and that's a privilege unfortunately that a lot of folks don't have um and so When we have uh for example you know crazy rich asians come out as a movie there was so much pressure on this movie to do everything and i'm among the people who possibly weren't as in love with that movie as others were um but also that needed to be okay right like people needed to be able to make art that represents queers or asian americans or disabled people and not have that you know um insurmountable pressure uh, to do everything and to speak to every possible experience, um, and we all deserve that, right? We all deserve uh, to see ourselves reflected in myriad in myriad ways around us, and to know that we can grow up into all sorts of roles and relationships and contexts. Um, and so that's the gift of story, I guess. That uh, more of us need to have access to.
0: I I really appreciated it. again. Thank you for for kind of unpacking that. And listeners, I would say read the book, it goes into that in in greater detail and reminds me of, you know, Glad comes out with an annual report sort of looking at the state of representation in the media. And I think, again, looking at those numbers intersectionally is really important. I had read that uh, the L word Generation Q was actually the first TV show. And this is just going back two years that had a sex scene with a disabled person. And I thought, this is a first now? Um, you know, and, and as you say, that idea that when we have narrative scarcity, the pressure on that singular story to like be perfect, uh, whereas, you know, other narratives don't have all of that pressure and how unfair that is and how it, it can dangerously then lead to kind of a, oh, well, this is speaking for all or, you know, is, is trying to represent a homogenous group. Your book also really had me thinking about the power of revisiting story and rethinking and rereading story. Um, the book draws on the Dragon Fruit Project, the Visibility Project and the Queer Ancestors Project. My audience lets me know all the time that they really want to help their students better understand the purpose of archives. Um, I think both you know, researching, looking into them, as well as considering what it might mean to build one and just the value of growing as a researcher, you refer to archives as quote, sites of meaning making. And I'm wondering if you could perhaps take listeners through some of your process in making meaning, maybe from one of the archives that you were focused on, and just help those of us who do want to inspire aspiring researchers to understand the value of of really listening and valuing when someone has taken that time to document, curate stories. Um, what, what that's meant to you and your work.
1: Yeah, uh, I really appreciate the question. So talk about stock stories. I spend most of my life and most of my time as an early academic, assuming I didn't do archival work, because when we think of archives with the capital A, we think of sort of dusty library files that you go to some official archive, capital A for, and a lot of those don't have queer history or Asian American history um, for historical reasons. So for a lot of marginalized communities, uh, you either did not have access to the sorts of authorities that were able to preserve um, official documents or your histories were not considered important enough to be preserved, or for a lot of queer and trans communities specifically, you were burning evidence of who you were in order to stay alive. And so uh, for folks who work on histories of these communities in particular, we tend to think more expansively about archives. And that's the thing I really, I really love. Um, So the term ephemera comes from Jose Esteban Munoz, uh, who's thinking about queer archives. And he's talking about the sort of fleeting, otherwise ephemeral um, aspects of queer history that are truly meaningful, um, and that capture really crucial moments of queer history that you wouldn't find necessarily in a museum or in a library, um, that you wouldn't even think to put there, um, but that show so much of how we lived and how we survived. it acknowledges that so much of you know queer history is made in alleyways or in bars, in people's living rooms and in kitchens, and that these moments are equally meaningful, right, um, and deserving of our attention, and will teach us things about how we got each other through, um, and about the ways that we formed a sort of collective uh, identity, a form of collective care, uh, in defiance of a world that didn't see us as as worthy of it, um, and so when I look at any sort of present day account, you know, with these lessons in mind, I'm asking not only what's present, but what's absent, you know, not not just who's there, but who's not there, uh, what's said, what's not being said, and what conditions have made it unsafe for people to be present or to be speaking. Um, So I think about archives as meaningful, not just in the fact that they're preserving sort of particular documents and particular stories, but they designate particular things as worth preserving. Mm. Um, and so what was really cool to me about the Queer Ancestors Project, about the Dragon Fruit Project, um, the Visibility Project was that they took uh moments and stories that traditionally wouldn't have been considered <laughs> worth worthy of archiving and and honored them. So the Dragon Fruit Project, for example, um, I remember when I was talking to uh, one of the folks from, it's now called Lavender Phoenix, is the organization uh, in charge of it. But when I was speaking with them, uh, they were talking about the importance of capturing queer and trans Asian American history while we still had access to it. It was a moment of acknowledging that our elders are sort of aging out, and we wanna make sure that their stories are here, um, both for them and for us, so that we know that we have a history, that we don't have to start from square zero all over again, um, but that folks have, fought for um, relationships and resources that we now have access to, and we wanna honor that. Um, And so they went out and um, set up these intergenerational conversations between uh, queer and trans Asian Americans to capture uh, this history that really otherwise wouldn't have had um, any particular place to be held. Um, And so when I go into those spaces, I am very much listening for, you know, what are they saying, but also when they tell us this story what are the historical conditions, what are the cultural conditions, what are the structural conditions that created this story, right? So every personal story is not just about an individual, but it's about how an individual had to move through a world that we decide on over and over again together. Um, I guess that's sort of the through line in what I do in that I think about the personal, but in a very communal way that we're not actually floating individuals, but that every time we encounter a barrier. That barrier was shaped by something, <laughs> and is ignored by someone's. And if we're able to see that, then we're also able to see that the ways that we're inevitably intertwined and responsible for one another, and you know, capable of changing these things that we're immersed in together. So, um, I hope that I guess begins to answer the question.
0: Yeah, and and again, you know, kind of just taps back into the title of the book, and you know, you kind of explain constellating and, and what that means, and making those connections is is, again, it's it's very powerful. And I was glad that you mentioned uh, before we started recording that this book is actually freely available. It's open access right now until the end of June. And I know on your website, too, you have a really generous offer for anybody who is trying to access your research and they can't, that they can reach out to you and you will make it readily available. You know, I I, listeners of this show. I have a significant portion who are high school teachers who have students who are thinking about what they would like to potentially study, and uh, you know, you you focus in rhetoric. And I'm wondering, like, can you can you speak a little bit to because I I think if I'm a 15 or 16 year old and I am passionate about storytelling about as you were saying how powerful it is as a societal force. I don't know that I maybe necessarily understand like studying rhetorics what that connection might be so I'm wondering if you can kind of just demystify what does it mean to go into that field uh, what what does that sort of study and practice look like?
1: Yeah totally so I had no idea that rhetoric was a field. I went to grad school for my MFA in creative writing and uh, you know found out that there's no job at the end of an MFA in creative writing. <laughs> Uh, and I was, I happened to be in a grad program with a very good rhetoric, uh, PhD program. And I learned there that there's an entire field talking about how we do things with language and how language comes to matter in the world in a way that I, you know, had no vocabulary for at the time. So as a creative writer, I was the only person of color, I believe in my entire class of MFA students in my grad program. And... I and it was in this town that is 88% white, which is the first time I had ever lived in a small town, let alone one so homogeneously um, populated. And so it was the first time I became, I guess, acutely aware of myself as, you know, a, a person of color who very much did not fit into my context. And as a, a creative writer in that setting, I learned that people read my work with a set of expectations. Um and expected to me to write certain stories. Um, and that's not necessarily a part that we were talking about in my creative writing program, but was something that the field of rhetoric very much examines, which is how all of our cultural forces and expectations, all of our histories inform the ways that we receive a particular text. And you know, in rhetoric, text is used very broadly. So that could be a written text. It could be a movie. It could be a song. It could be you know a setting, a place. Uh, Basically, anytime you can take something to mean, to make knowledge, to create some sort of um, significance for a person, uh, you can read it as rhetorical. And I think that that's actually a very cool thing about rhetoric, in that we look at the world around us and consider where. all of the places from which we're drawing information and how is that shaping the ways that we encounter other people the ways that we encounter land the ways that we encounter places how does that you know inevitably condition the ways that we think we move in the world and what we're responsible for and who we're responsible for so uh it's it's very cool as a field it's also a lot to wrap your mind around when you've never really gotten access to it um but yeah uh it's it really opened a whole world to me when I found it, you know, that there, I I think I I summarize what I say sometimes tongue in cheek as I study how people say things without saying things, you know, Um, how we manage to make meaning without saying it overtly, because sometimes the most powerful messages we have or the most powerful values and beliefs we have are ones we haven't interrogated because we aren't even aware that we're carrying them around with us. Um, And so how do I bring that out with what I study?
0: So tell me if this is like, if I'm on the right track here or not, but you have a story in the book where you're exploring the notion of, um, coming out dialogues. And, uh, there's a specific reference to the idea that a lot of the language or a lot of the, like coming out stories we know are really from like this Western perspective where it might be child and parent just in like total confrontation rather than, um, perhaps working with language that's familiar to the parent or again like coming to discuss your coming out in your own terms or your own terminologies is that an example of um kind of your your study and practice looking at those like that as a specific example of a would that count as a text
1: yeah yeah absolutely so the way the stock narrative that we have of coming out uh of the individual declaring to the parent this is who i am and you can't change me you know and It's very Western and it's very much steeped in an individual as a sort of bounded identity uh, that operates independently of the people and the communities that they're in. Um, So there's this really beautiful passage uh, from the Dragon Fruit Project uh, where Alice Hom, who's a historian, uh, an Asian American lesbian uh, author, activist, and she's talking about how she was this, you know, well-respected, successful lesbian scholar of Asian American history and her mom didn't know because her mom wasn't reading these books, wasn't in the same communities and conversations Um, and she doesn't have that coming out moment with her mom, right? There's no like, oh mom, I am queer, but her mom reads her dissertation and her book, which is very much about queer Asian American history. And her mom places these books on the family altar, um, which is this sort of hallowed space. And she talks about how that gesture means so much more than her mom going to a pride parade, you know? Um, and I think that that beautifully captures the ways that we communicate differently in different familial contexts um, and how the sort of gestures we're sometimes expecting from our communities or our families uh, run up against our actual communicative practices. So, um, I guess to to transfer that a little bit more to my own experience, I grew up, you know, watching the same sort of after school TV shows <laughs> as everybody else in the '90s and early 2000s, and it did not like the expressions of love in those spaces were entirely alien to me. Like it stunned me the first time I heard a friend say "I love you" to their parents over the phone. Uh, like I was, I actually stopped and I was like, "You you say that in your family? Like that's the thing." <laughs> Um, And it took and because that was what I was looking for for a long time, I didn't see the ways that my family was expressing care and love uh, in an entirely different sort of um, maybe gesture action based language that wasn't you know overt statements or declarations and uh actually working on this book and working with more trans and queer asian american communities really taught me you know to listen for those differences and how are we showing up for one another in ways that aren't what we commonly see represented and and have come to anticipate
0: i i wonder too if that taps into again part of what is maybe like a secondary benefit of really growing your skill set as a researcher is sort of like I, I don't know that this is an aspiration or a goal that you have when you go into the work that it is going to also lead to sort of like the me search or the better understanding of self or am I totally wrong there? Do you feel like now that you are sort of like a professional researcher? Is that part of, of the goal? I mean, should that be part of the goal for anybody working in research? I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm very much of the school of thought that the researcher is not a disembodied you know, force, right? We can't actually eradicate the self from what we are doing. And something that the book leans into and tries to acknowledge is that we are inevitably going to shape the way that the research comes out. The fact that I am a trans and queer Asian American means that I do this research very differently than someone who's not necessarily a member of these communities. It means that I might have access to experiences and memories and relationships that folks who aren't uh, trans and queer Asian-American would have access to. Uh, it means that I might have uh, investments and attachments that others would not carry. Um, and it means that I am learning from these spaces just as much as you know I am trying to bring this knowledge into other conversations. And uh, something that was, I guess, an anecdote that I sometimes share, I came out as non-binary and trans while I was working on this book. Um, The first time it even really, the idea stuck with me was the first time that I met someone from the Dragon Fruit Project and we introduced each other or we introduced ourselves and they asked me for my pronouns. And it was the first time it occurred to me that I could choose those, right? That they weren't just a thing that was given to me and I must stay with them forever. Um, And I think that that's a part of our research that. We have to acknowledge, right, that the, that we are very much learning from these spaces and and benefiting from them, um, and it should, it should make us ask how are we honoring those relationships, um, those gifts that others have entrusted us with, and how are we um, making sure that this is a reciprocal um, engagement and not just an extractive one where we take the knowledge and leave, right? So I think that. acknowledging the self in that interaction is crucial for doing responsible research that is accountable to the communities that inevitably your work will affect
0: that's really beautiful i i would love to leave our conversation on that note because i you know you're, you're kind of getting to the idea of research as an act of care and compassion which your book really very much felt that way um listeners again the the link to access that book both open source until the end of june or to purchase a copy to nudge your local and your school library to also include it will be there. Um, I I did actually, I said I wanted to leave it there, but I do wanna ask you one last question. On your website, you point folks to um, a few different ways that they can reach out and support the queer community. Uh, you know, it's great to do that all year round, I would say, especially during Pride Month, listeners, is a great time, especially uh, if you are able to make a financial contribution or even to point folks to um, funds that they should be aware of. I wonder if you want to give a shout out either to one of those funds or um, if if there's a different... Um, maybe resource or organization that you would say is a great one for listeners to consider supporting during the month of June?
1: Yeah, um, I like to point out Black Trans Leadership of Austin. They do a lot of direct services to Black trans folks in the area. Uh, We know that uh, trans folks have been the sort of center of uh, hostile legislation this session. Uh, So I really recommend, you know, throwing a few bucks their way if you have it
0: great thank you i will make sure to link to that over in the show notes thank you so much for your time and thank you for putting this beautiful book out there uh, into the universe that's like my little pun on uh constellation being in the title in case anybody missed the pun it's always helpful when people point out their own puns right
1: thank you so much (laughs) thank you so much for reading and for having me
0: listeners thank you again for tuning in to the podcast Before I say farewell for the week, I also wanted to let you know that there is a very special opportunity from Dr. Brandy Wade, who is a former guest of this show. They are also the founder and owner of The Queer Mathematics Teacher and the co-founder of Radical Pedagogy Institute, who you have heard me talk about on this show. If you're not following them on social, I've linked that into the show notes as well. So the special invitation from them is that they are putting together sort of a virtual panel resource, which is a collection of queer and trans teacher-student family stories. So if you might have a little bit of time, we're thinking five to 10 minutes for you to respond to a prompt and you're interested in supporting Dr. Wade, my email address is over there in the show notes. Reach out, let me know. This is timely. Dr. Wade does need this by June 21st. So if you're curious to learn more, shoot me an email and I'll send that information to you. See you again next Thursday.